0: Today, we're talking to Judge Shannon Fryson of the Massachusetts Superior Court. Judge Fryson had a lot to share with us about her journey, from the importance of focusing on the merit of your work, being the best at what you do with integrity, to the significance of not holding back when you're young if you know what you want. Judge Fryson takes us from law school to the Marine Corps to the judicial bench. I hope you'll find something here to support you on your journey as she shares what she'd tell herself from where she is today. Welcome to I'd Tell Myself, where we dive into the individual journeys people have taken to professional success and share some of the lessons that they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Danielle Frankel. I've long believed that there are many ways to learn the important lessons in life. And while some lessons are only gained through personal experience, others can be learned less painfully from those ahead of us on their own journey. I hope you'll find something here to support you as we ask these individuals what they tell themselves from where they now sit. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. Will you share your name and your current role,
1: please? My name is Shannon Freisen. I am currently a Justice of the Massachusetts Superior Court. That's
0: great. And how long have you been a judge?
1: This is my 14th year as a judge. I was initially appointed to the Boston Municipal Court 2009, and then appointed again to the Superior Court in Massachusetts in 2013.
0: Did you always want to be a judge? Is this what you always wanted to do?
1: Uh, No, I really didn't think about judging until I applied. I guess some people do think about it well in advance, but I was very much into litigating Didn't have a plan to go on the bench or anything. Just was trying to be the best uh, trial lawyer I could be. And what kind of trial law did you do? Um, Mostly criminal, but also some civil, including employment law and some white collar criminal as well. But I've also prosecuted.
0: So you worked on both sides? Yes. That must give you an interesting perspective to have, have had that opportunity.
1: It is probably the best perspective you can have for criminal law is to have worked on both sides, no matter what you're doing. Just having that experience on both sides, I think is good.
0: Do you feel like that prepared you better to be a judge?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes. You certainly know the what everyone is supposed to be doing, but you also know the limitations that exist for lawyers and what they can do. So I think that's helpful to a judge. That's so
0: interesting is that my mind immediately went to how would that make it easier to understand sort of from the perspective of what's happening with whoever is on trial. But it's really, it's a whole nother layer to think about what each side uh, in terms of the lawyers can and can't do, what the limitations are, how they can help or hurt each other, so to speak, in the process, Mm -hmm. sort of a whole other dance that's happening above the content of what's happening in the
1: courtroom. Right, right. It's really interesting.
0: Okay. So if I go back another step, did you always want to be a lawyer?
1: Not always, but probably since college, I would say. There were other careers I considered before that without really knowing much about careers. And so I don't know if you count those or not things that you wanted to be as a kid. Once I was sort of forced to think about, okay, what are you going to do with yourself after school, then I think it was pretty, it it always stood out as something I thought I would be interested in and good at, which was important. I I wanted to be a doctor, but I just, you know, I was not good at science. So that didn't really bode well for that pre-med and medical school, but you know, in the law, I felt like that was um, more of a calling. And so that was pretty much in college. That's great.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I was also thinking I'd be a doctor and then I made it to organic chemistry. And then it was clear that I was not going to be a doctor. (laughs) So when you talk about it being a calling, I'm curious, is there a piece of it that really
1: that you specifically that you felt called to or was it broadly the
0: idea of justice?
1: Certainly. Yes, the broad concept of justice, but also the more uh, history of this country and Black history that I learned, the more I felt the need to do legal work and to practice law and to make changes happen that way. That's great. So it felt like a, an avenue where you could make a difference? Yes,
0: That's awesome. It's interesting as I've done these interviews, that's one of the things that I've heard from a number of people across different industries that the career that they're in is something that felt like it had purpose to them or felt like a place where they could do meaningful work or where they could make a difference with their lives. And I love to see that sort of emerging trend in the conversation that people who seem to to get to points that we consider to be successful generally in whatever industry you're in, right, are often people who are passionate about the work that they do for more than just the name of success in the work that they do. Right. It's, it means something, which is, is right.
1: Great. Right. I think so. I think uh, that is common amongst people who strive and and get to certain levels in their field. It, it, it does take some passion to keep going and to really think about why you're even doing what you're doing.
0: Yeah. So you've been doing this work for a while. Do you feel still feel that passionate about the work that you do?
1: Yes. it's. I mean, there are all sorts of human affairs, and normally when things don't go as planned in those human affairs, then that's where lawyers and courts come into play. And that is really never-ending, and it can be many different topics and types of interactions. We're talking about So it it remains interesting.
0: Do you hear a variety of different, I mean, you hear things all across the board. It's not just one type of case that you deal with. That may be a silly question, but as I said, I don't have a um, lot of exposure to, (laughs) I don't know a lot of judges firsthand actually.
1: Sure, yes, we do. Uh, Well, on the Superior Court, you're doing civil and criminal. We uh, rotate every three months from one session to another. So e- people either do over the course of a year, two criminal usually do two criminal sessions and two civil sessions. So you so pretty much everyone gets a mix, and there' t- it's very different type of work. <laughs> so it's good, I think, that people do get a mix and are not doing just the exact same thing all the time.
0: Feel like that helps sort of guard off a certain amount of bias against the same sort of repeat issues.
1: Sure, on any particular matter or type of case, people change can change over time on, on, on your thinking about things, but that may take years. And some diversity of thought about cases and types of cases and, and different matters is, I think, good for the 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 jurisprudence on that. So that it grows and develops and keeps up with the, the country, so to speak, and good for the parties that you don't just have sort of one way of looking at things that governs a session every day for years. Having a rotation of judges, I think, gives the parties uh, more options in terms of what may or may not happen on matters and you're not always you know thinking that you've got you know exactly what's going to occur because it's the same judge and you've sort of seen him or her um, and how they think about things over and over and over so sometimes that's great and <laughs> sometimes it's not good to have that sort of that much consistency. Some consistency is good, but on this court, there are about 85 of us and we go, you know, each judge may go to two or three counties over the course of a year. So you're not going everywhere all over Massachusetts, but we are able to rotate enough to get new and different thoughts about things in the different counties. And I I think that's a good thing.
0: Sounds like a good thing to me.
1: I mean, not huh. everyone agrees with that, but I think that's a good thing.
0: I imagine, I mean, to be fair, that's sort of the state of everything these days, right? Not everyone agrees, but. Right. So I'm curious, obviously, I, I checked out your LinkedIn stories and, you know, some of your history and and I know from seeing that, that you've taken a really interesting road to get to where you are. Can you walk me through a little bit of that?
1: I can probably give a, a summary of the wave tops. The... It with college. I went to Harvard and would certainly do that again. That was a great experience from uh, 1988 to 1992. And when I graduated from there, I went straight into law school. So I went to Georgetown for law school, which was other than uh, being in Quantico for training. That was really my only time so far living in that area. And Georgetown is a, a, a great school, a big school. I would certainly do that again as well. There are a lot of people who are coming straight through from college like me, and a lot of people who are doing law as a second career. So you get a great mix of, of folks there and has a pretty large Black student body. While I was in Georgetown, while I was at the school, we were, as a country, uh, still under the don't ask, don't tell rules for military service. And because the military branches did discriminate in that way, the those branches were actually not allowed to advertise or recruit at colleges and law schools at that time. So they couldn't come and join the college, the fair for jobs or because of have, the table. Yes. So because the military services were considered to be discriminating against folks on the LGBTQ spectrum, that discrimination prohibited them from advertising it at schools. So it was just by luck that I even found out about the judge advocate programs. There was one, <laughs> one Marine, I think at school at the time, and I still know this Marine, <laughs> he's a lawyer, but he put these flyers in everyone's mailbox at school and, you know, against the, the the policy, which is how I learned about the Judge Advocate Program and got me to thinking about it. It was, it seemed perfect uh, for me in, in law school. Uh, I learned about it, I think I learned about it during my first year and I joined the Marine Corps during my second summer. And so I applied to the judge advocate program in the Marine Corps, applied to the officer program with the intent on becoming a judge advocate and went to officer candidate school and became an officer that summer and was released uh, on the same day that I was commissioned to finish school. And so that's what you did and, with your um, last free
0: summer? It
1: yes, was- became a Marine, uh, <laughs> I you know, I hear that's a super easy
0: process. Yes, right.
1: Yeah, I bound <laughs> myself up to the core in the country on my last free summer. so that 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 pretty that kind of set the course for for a while. So when I came back to school, yeah, I was a new person. I was marine by then, but I also was not then engaging in interviewing the interviewing process, the on-campus interviews that law students get to participate in where the firms, come out to the school and everyone is all abuzz and in their blue suits going to these hotel rooms to interview for these big money jobs. I was just still walking around in shorts because I knew I was going on to active duty and did not need to participate in interviewing. So I finished my third year. When I was done with school in DC, I came back to Boston for the summer And that summer I worked for who was Bill Delahunt, who was then the Norfolk County District Attorney and worked as an assistant district attorney and did that while I was studying for the bar, taking the bar and waiting for results. And there is a rule in Massachusetts that allows law students to do some types of cases. You cannot represent individuals usually, but you can represent the government, do work at the DA's office. That's at least one type of work that you can do while you're awaiting completing school and or bar. So I did that. Sounds um, terrible, but I, that's a
0: little bit like uh legally blonde, right? <laughs> Sorry. You know,
1: and I didn't actually see that. So, so you know you i represent I, the <laughs>
0: client at the end with supervision, even though she's still a law student.
1: Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. So, yes, um, we we do some of that in Massachusetts under in a controlled environment with yes. supervision. So I was able to be working at the DA's office uh, based on that and got a good start at standing up in court, handling cases, deciding what to do with matters, arguing to a judge, trying cases, both for a jury, uh, six person juries and judge alone trials. So it, it gave me a great start on trial advocacy. Um, I went from there to active duty. Once I was, once I learned of my that I passed the bar in Massachusetts, I was then slated class at the basic school in the Marine Corps. So there are two sets, or well, really three sets of training you got to do as an officer before working as an officer in the Marine Corps. So officer candidate school is the first. uh, The basic school is the second. That's six months long, also in Quantico, Virginia, which is essentially all infantry training and harassment package. And so uh, every officer does that, no matter what your specialty is going to be. I went from the basic school then to Naval Justice School, which is in Newport, Rhode Island. So all the lawyers in the Navy and the Marine Corps go through Naval Justice School at Newport. And that's about two months up there, hard duty, beautiful Newport. And that sort of, you know, drops you into military justice and administrative separations and things that you'll be doing that are uniquely military and having to do with the UCMJ. So that you get sort of immersed in that and then sent out to some base or station to practice. I was uh, sent to Marine Corps Air Station New River in Jacksonville, North Carolina. And I did a couple of jobs during my tour, my three to four years there. One was sort of what they call legal assistance, which is civil type of work that you do individually on behalf of Marines, like separation agreements when they're getting divorced wills and powers of attorney interaction with businesses where they may have a consumer issue or landlord tenant issue is sort of all the all the ills that can befall folks in their young early 20s (laughs) basically and you work with them individually like as individual clients almost as if you're a private attorney so I started doing that and then I moved into prosecution where uh, we called the Prosecutor's Trial Council. And I did that for the rest of the time that I was there. So maybe, probably about an even split between those two jobs. I left active duty after that one tour on active duty. Left active duty Marine Corps for civilian work. I came back to Boston, where I was barred. I started working for a medium-sized criminal defense firm called Dwyer and Kalora. And it was an all litigation firm. We did a lot of white collar criminal. I did blue collar criminal as well from that firm and some employment law and the plaintiff side employment. I stayed there about seven years as an associate. I left there at that mark uh, for a bunch of reasons. But when I left, I opened my own solo practice in Boston and law firm, Frison law firm. I represented uh, folks accused of murder, rapes, robbery, drugs, guns, all sorts of criminal offenses and allegations, largely in Massachusetts, a couple of other places, but I also did military justice. So in my civilian capacity, then I represented people who chose to have civilian defense counsel at their courts, martial and at their administrative separations or boards of inquiry. And I did that sort of all over the world, really, at all different bases and stations. That lasted for just a couple of years before I applied to the bench in 2009. And when I applied to the bench, you know, within six months, I was appointed. That sort of set the course for the track I'm on now. That was 14 years ago and been hearing cases in Massachusetts ever since.
0: It's amazing. What what made you take the leap to apply to become a judge?
1: At the time, I wanted to have a larger impact on the law. I, I thought I could have a larger impact on the law as a judge. You're still dealing with a case at the time. But, you know, in, instead of arguing how things should be in Massachusetts, I wanted to be on the deciding and of how things should be in Massachusetts as it relates to our um, constitutional provisions, our criminal laws in particular, and just have more of a seat at the table of justice, uh, really, and and to continue in my own efforts to see more people who look like myself in those seats. So it was sort of a myth. of all of that do you feel like you've seen
0: that kind of shift over the last few years
1: a shift to
0: a shift in terms of seeing more people that look like you having better representation across
1: the board I think it's a work in progress still there are fits and starts but you know people minorities and people whatever type of diversity people bring to the bench. Everyone has everyone is subject to a lifespan and a life. And so it cannot be that because I'm black and appointed to the bench, I have to be there forever or I can be there forever. People still have issues in their lives, health problems. People go to higher courts, people go to do other types of work, people pass away, people leave their jobs for other reasons. So you know, it it takes a, a mighty effort to achieve some diversity and then maintain some diversity. Appointing judges of color, for instance, or LGBTQ judges can't be one-offs because that person has a life and we don't know what's going to happen in their life anymore than you know what's going to happen in your life. So you can't say, oh, okay, we got a Black person on Superior Court, whoo. We checked that box. I'm glad we're done with that. Let's let's move on to something. Else. Well, yeah, right. that may be the case right. for a few years, but that's not really the, the way we should be thinking about it either. This should be a constant process that that doesn't happen in waves or per governor, but is a goal across the board that we maintain. And I think that's the hardest part, particularly when it comes to a process that so many people have something to say about. So, you know, when you just have, say, a, a CEO or a hiring partner doing the work that makes up who is at the place, that's a little different than having um, JNC, a judicial nominating committee of 21 members, then a JBC, uh, Joint Bar Commission, and then the governor's lawyers, and then the governor's counselors who are elected officials, and then the governor. You know, you, there are a lot of places where people have a lot of discretion in that type of process. So it, it takes extra work to make sure that everyone in the process has diversity in mind and as a constant goal. It's not it, that's not easy to do, and it's you know we're also sort of. Always subject to the number of people that you have at any given time in law wanting to be judges. You know, that's not every single Black lawyer anyway. So it's difficult. But I think from what I've seen so far, Governor Maura Healy has made some good appointments and is early in her tenure focused on making those appointments. And I feel good about that and the future. Maura Healy is actually my classmate. From Harvard. And so oh. it's great to see her all the way from attorney general and other positions she held before that to governor. Also, uh Justice Katanji Brown Jackson is our classmate at from Harvard as well. We are all class of 92. Awesome I didn't class. Line up
0: the ears. Sounds like an awesome, awesome class,
1: class. For sure. Harvard. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so many other people in that class doing just phenomenal things including my roommates and and other people. So
0: one hell of a um, reunion. Oh my god.
1: Yeah, yeah, we've had some really phenomenal reunions. I it's always a work in progress, but I think that Massachusetts is actually well positioned to have it as a goal and make it a reality. And I think right now particularly people in leadership it's actually on the table. And, and you can see it when you look at appointments, not just to the bench, but including to the bench.
0: I'm curious, you know, it your field is so specific and there is so much rigor around how things get done and how you move from one level to the next to the next. Like I said, part of what I found interesting about your story is that You sort of, you didn't do all the blue suit and the hotel interviews, right? In your last year of law school, you went into the Marines and that's, I get that that's a path that some people take, but it's obviously not the most common path that people take to get to where you are. But I hear you on the priorities and the need for consistency in making that kind of diversity a priority in appointments. And I know that one of the things that we often talk about on the business side of things is, you know. Well, are the people that you want, you know, if you're looking for diversity, are the people that you want in the in the pipeline? Are there enough people in the pipeline coming through that we'd be ready to appoint them as they come up or to make them CEO on the business side, you know, make put them onto boards and executive positions? If you were talking to law students or, you know, young lawyers at this point, either people who, for lack of a better word, sort of meet one of the diversity criteria that we'd want to be promoting for people who consider themselves allies and want to be supportive of making sure that that happens as a consistent thing, as opposed to this sort of stop and go business, what advice would you give them?
1: Okay, this is the same advice I always give. Um, In fact, I gave it this week to a student who asked a similar question individually with me. And the advice I give to students and people who are uh, at the beginning, maybe are just starting to practice, Focus on merit, focus on merit. What I mean by that is whatever it is that you do. So if you decide I'm, I'm going into criminal law, I'm gonna defend people, great. You need to focus as a person who fits any diversity criteria on the law, oral argument, sentencing, Um, In all aspects of procedure and trial work in your state that you're going to be doing this work in or federally. Be the go-to person. If you're sitting around a group of lawyers and a criminal question comes up, everybody should look at you. When you're not in the room and somebody is saying, oh my goodness, my brother's son needs a criminal lawyer. People should be thinking about you as a referral because you know what you're doing and you have the integrity that people want when they're choosing a lawyer. Don't think about your membership in a protected class or in a minority class or in marginalized peoples. That's not gonna do what you want it to do when you say, how do I get ahead and do all that I wanna do and all that I can do in this field? Be the expert, because that is going to get you in the door 90% of the time, no matter what you got going on. You can come in there in a bumblebee suit, it's going to be fine, because you're the expert, and you know what you're doing, and we don't care. We, we're going to get you some honey if you come in, in the bumblebee suit. That's <laughs> That's what. That's, that's how you want to be in your area of practice. That's all you need to focus on. The rest we, we talk about as things happen. It doesn't mean nothing. It doesn't mean you're going to have a gold um, path laid out in front of you because of that. But you're going to pretty much, it's going to be a path. You're definitely going to have a path in front of you. Uh, there may be some obstacles and things thrown your way. That's just life. But if you focus on the merit of what work you do, you're good. And I we will be talking again after all of your conquests if you focus on the merits of your work. So, you know, as a student, be a good, good, good student. Take it seriously. That's your job at the time. When you get out, no matter what job you do, if your job is to work at this law firm and do all the dog cases, do the heck out of that. Win some dog cases. Try some new stuff in the dog cases practice and hone your skills in the dog cases. Be the expert on dog cases. That's it. That With that advice, you won't need any more advice from me till you're 50.
0: Do you feel like you did a lot of that work when you were in the Marines? Which work is that? The, the early piece of, you know, if you're going to do the dog cases, do them as best as you can. Try new things. Become the expert. Really know your stuff Absolutely. better than anybody
1: else. Absolutely. And the two positions that I told you about allowed me to really do that. Even within the Marine Corps, you would think, okay, every single moment of your day and every single th- case you handle is, it's got to be like this. And it's really a lot more open to lawyering, creativity, and and new thought than you would think, you know? So when I did legal assistance, I kind of ran it like a little law office. I put the processes into place that we were going to use and determined, you know, how we were going to tackle these different areas of law on the base, even even taxes. I, I was sent to tax preparer course by h and Block and was ordered to stand up a tax center on the base. I knew nothing about taxes until then. I learned a whole lot about taxes by having to do that. So I not only had to learn how to do taxes, I also had to figure out, okay, what all take, what does it take to run a tax center? You know, who needs to work there? What kind of programs do we have? How many computers do we need? What kind of building do we need? You know, everything about it. And um, the Marine Corps is a place where you get to do and figure out that type of stuff at a very young age. It's a, hey, here, Marine, go make it happen. We need X. Build an X. We don't care how you do it. Just build the X and let us know when you're done. And that's what Marines do, make it happen. That type of stuff, that that was really my only focus at the time. I was not married. I did not have children at the time. Um, And my sole focus was on being a Marine, being a lawyer, and the two combining. And so in each of those positions, I made it my business to make the position mine and do it the way I thought it should be done. Uh, whether it was legal assistance or prosecuting, because in the Marine Corps, prosecutors have a lot more power over the whole process. You're not just giving a file and saying, "Okay, whatever the next court date is, get this, you know, get this resolved some kind of way. You take it from beginning to end. You actually write the charges. You draft charges. In the, in the military services. So as a prosecutor, you're the person that makes sure that the person who's accused is um, held at the appropriate facility or not, that they have the appropriate uniform when they come to court, that it, 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 you, you run the entire show. So it, it, it throws a lot of responsibility at you to get used to having that level of responsibility very early on in your practice of law. And so I was solely focused on being a good Marine, being a good lawyer.
0: That's amazing. And, you know, I mean, I, I've heard similar stories. My stepdaughter and her husband were in the, the Navy as well. They were in military police. And, you know, it, it's such an immense amount of responsibility and accountability at a young age. Yeah. It really... Yeah. Especially that type story. of job, too. Yeah, you learn a whole lot of Yeah, bit military police than your peers Mm -hmm. outside of the military for
1: sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm curious.
0: Yeah. You said that, you know, you're talking about setting up like the whole tax function, (laughs) which is I'm sure exactly what you thought you would be doing as a lawyer, right. In law school. But it's interesting because you said you, you ran that piece, like it was your own practice. And then, you know, several years later, you went ahead and started your own practice here in, in the Boston area. Do you feel like that really helped to prepare you for that? It's Did that make that process easier back here in civilian life when you were doing it on your own?
1: Yeah, you know, I think having done that specifically uh, type of work in the Marine Corps, but also just being a Marine um, gives you so much more information about yourself and your capabilities and your leadership. And, you know, it certainly helps you I think with everything that comes beyond the Marine Corps, you know, being a parent or a spouse, wherever you work or whatever business you have, that background is invaluable uh, to to those efforts and to, you know, essentially living a good life and being a productive citizen in the country. I think, you know, that's, that is important, not just to just be sort of laying around and just be here. What are you contributing to the world, to the country, to your state, to your county even, you know, and that I think is something that Marines sort of, is innate to Marines is, you know, to be productive and contribute.
0: I'm curious, you mentioned earlier that you sort of heard about the program through the Marines like around the first year of law school and you decided that would be a good fit for you. Can you tell me what about that appealed to you over the sort of traditional interview and go with a big firm straight out of law school experience?
1: Yeah, there's a Marine officer that I know, his name is Scott Chant. And recently, I, I have not talked to Scott probably since the basic school. So I would say since 1997. He's been at a long time, but recently he did a podcast interview with someone and went through his phenomenal career. He is uh, a Marine pilot. He has flown for uh, two presidents, President Bush and President Obama. He's just a phenomenal guy, a pilot. And we were at the basic school in the same company at the basic school. So he is such a jokester. We we weren't the best of friends. We weren't like best friends or anything, but we knew each other and I, he was hilarious to me. So he did this interview recently where I learned all of these great things that he's been up to, but he talked about me in the interview. So I'm going to talk about the same thing in this interview because he mentioned to that Interviewer, that he and I, there, there was a period in which we were always sort of around each other, marching to marching off to uh, training and particularly rifle training and, and weapons training every morning, and we had this routine. We would get up and when we got into formation, he would say, "Fryson, what have you made?" and and I would say a bad career decision, you know? <laughs> and and it was this sort of running joke amongst the company that, you know, sort of a, I was there. Why are you here? Why are you crawling through this dirt with us? Why are you under this barbed wire? You don't have to do this. You know, you can go off and make a ton of money and be done with it. You're already, already a lawyer. And That always made me think about, why why am I doing this? And clearly, I think that the real answer was that I really was doing it for the same reasons that they were doing it, particularly folks who become officers. You can't say you're doing it for the money. There's not that much in it. Most people, I think, who join the Marine Corps and join any branch, want to serve the country. On some level, you want to serve. And my um, decision was no different. I thought it was a perfect um, addition to what I was doing. I was already in law school. So I said, okay, well, I'm in law school. Yeah, I've made it this far. I'm, I'm going to be a lawyer at the end of this three years, unless something terrible happens. But, you know, probably I'll pass and probably I'll be a lawyer. So is that it? And in my mind, I was like, yeah, that's great. But I, I want something else too. I want I want more than this, just that as a career. And I wanted the other thing to be at least partly physical in nature. And so the first thing that I did was take the firefighters exam in Massachusetts. And for many years, and and I don't know if it's still the case, but Massachusetts departments were under a consent decree. Because basically, they discriminated against minorities and women forever, <laughs> up until these agreements were entered into, and they were essentially under this obligation to hire certain numbers. They had some quota, some goals they needed to reach for diversity. And because fire departments, like police departments, have been historically uh, discriminatory. They discriminated against anybody who was not male and Irish. Essentially, in almost every city, Boston included, and so so that was the history that they were trying to get out of. So me coming along, black female, they were like, "Oh, where you?" I tested. I did great on the exam. They were like, "Great, what town do you want to work in?" And I didn't, I didn't finish and go through with that because I learned about the Marine Corps program, and it allowed me. I thought a better way to serve, use my law degree and get all that I wanted out of that sort of secondary career or dual career. So it it was an even better fit. I mean, I've always wanted to be an EMT and all sorts of things, but not all of them fit with being a lawyer or not respectably. I guess you can chase ambulances and chase ambulances, but I didn't (laughs) want to do it that way. So- Frowned um, upon, yes. Yeah, that would have been frowned upon. So, (laughs) So it kind of gave me the perfect way to combine that desire to serve the country, do something physical, practice law. Yeah, I wanted all of that. And so I certainly got it. What an amazing way to bring all those pieces together. Those are weird pieces to bring together. Yeah. So-
0: No, it's awesome. Thank
1: you, Marine Corps. (laughs) Hoorah, right? That is the Army. Uh, Sorry. No, they're very similar. Marine Corps is hoorah. Hoorah. We have a whole bunch. We have barks and all kinds of stuff.
0: I won't even attempt that. As a
1: civilian, you're safe with hoorah (laughs) for the Marine Corps.
0: (laughs) I I won't attempt those. Those would probably end up being both laughable and insulting to people without me even realizing it. So we'll just leave that off the table. (laughs) Okay. While it's close to Veterans Day, thank you for your service you and all Thank of your
1: you.
0: comrades and peers. It sounds like the Marine Corps was amazing for you, an incredible way to, to be where you are. Do you have a way that you, you know, given that you're not uh, active duty at this point, do you have a way that as a judge now you're sort of balancing out that desire for what sounds like more of an adrenaline <laughs> filled space?
1: You know, I don't have as much of a need for that. But I think at this point, I do more traveling to address that than anything. But, you know, there have been different points at which something else filled that need. When I came off of active duty initially, I I played for a women's professional football team and league, sort of filling that same role uh, in my life initially, at least, you know. I went on to co-manage uh, that team and to be the commissioner for the league. So my role, you know, changed over time in that space, but but it was still sort of fulfilling the um, physical and non-legal part of me. That I was not a professional athlete or, or college athlete before that, but I certainly was an athlete, and as a marine, you're just physical in so many ways. <laughs> so athlete or uh, whether it's a sport or not. So that was also a, a great experience. and and you know, part, another another part of my career that gave me a lot different experience than litigation. I wasn't really doing litigation for the the um the league. I did do, other legal matters for them and resolve their disputes amongst teams so i think all of that sort of played into you know that type of neutral role too, in making decisions about disputes so that certainly helped for later later life on the bench
0: it's so interesting i i love to see how you found ways throughout the course of your career to balance out the different pieces that you wanted to pursue right your desire to make a difference and impact the system. I cannot imagine that law school was super easy. So some amount of academic challenge and the rigor that is required to do that type of work in the first place with the need to be active and be involved and be doing something physical and something that has some, uh, sounds like some kind of an adrenaline kick somewhere in there. Sure. Sure. Yep. So my background, like I said, is really around the human psychology of things and how we learn to manage and how we learn to lead and there are lots of assumptions that I can make about the Marines teaching you great leadership skills, but I'll I'd love to actually hear from you, you know, in the time that you have shifted through all of these different unique positions, sort of how have you learned to to manage work, to lead people? Where did those skills come from
1: for you? Well, the Marine Corps is certainly one one of the places that those skills came from in the most direct. Way, because that's at least partly the the biggest,, I would say one of the biggest things other than fighting skills specifically. I think leadership is the biggest thing that the Marine Corps teaches and has a goal at for teaching, especially for officers. So there's a huge emphasis on it in different ways, in sort of combat-related ways where you are leading a squad, leading fire team, making decisions about things that would happen in war fighting, and also just in terms of human interaction. So, you know, as an officer in the Marine Corps, you're more than likely going to be in charge of some people, no matter what your job is, and most of the people will be young people, and you in in that setting you literally control almost everything that they do or can do so there's a lot of emphasis on dealing with marines almost not like hr and beyond <laughs> like beyond hr like you got to take the work the workers home with you type of hr and so there's a huge emphasis there but also just from my family my family life my mother is the oldest of 12 children so and i'm the oldest of I don't even know how many of my cousins at, the, at, the, at our generation. And growing up, my mom and her family in Mississippi as Black Southerners, sharecropping, my grandparents were sharecroppers, and in all sorts of other jobs that you had to know how to do to really support a family uh, as a Black person back then. And there was a lot of emphasis put on the children, you know, sort of, early on being leaders and taking care of younger children and running the household and getting everybody off to school or getting everybody to the cotton field, or that's the role that my mother played. And that's who she was in the family, the oldest, daughter and child. She pretty much ran her and her 11 siblings. And yeah, she certainly passed those genes on to me, but also just her mentality You know, really, I was already a Marine before I was a Marine because (laughs) I didn't even know when I went in the Marine Corps that she had gone in the Marine Corps. I literally was 24 or whatever I was, didn't know it until then. And I've never known my father, but I also learned that he was a service member in the Army. And so I really feel like this, this was in my genes without me even knowing it. Uh, to serve and serve in that way. But in terms of the leadership, definitely from the Marine Corps and definitely from my home life and from my mother.
0: That's amazing. It's amazing that they lined up so clearly. Yeah, totally. I think a lot of people have the experience of, I can't speak from my experience, but... I think a lot of people have the experience of joining whatever branch of the military they join and discovering that the order and the structure and the expectations and the way that things get done and the rules around here, like it's such a different experience from where so many people come from. So that's it's just interesting that it it sounds like it flowed pretty naturally for you from one setting to another. I
1: mean, pretty much. I I was not someone who was going from being a wayward kid to go some go on to on to active duty or go to boot camp and get straightened out so to speak you know i was already sort of on the straight and narrow and this the marine Corps just put that on overdrive you know achievement overdrive um and and reinforced everything that that my mom had already done and so by the time i left uh, officer candidate school It's like, oh, of course, I can eat this meal in five seconds because that's what I'm required to do. You know, no problem. Of course, I'll be ready in 10 seconds. Give me 11 seconds. I'll be done and at the car. And that's how my mom engaged. And the Marine Corps just pushed that into overdrive. So, yeah, I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's certainly what my path has been. Yeah. Sounds <laughs> no like it bit.
0: worked for you. So that's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm wondering, sort of coming back to the things that people don't often see about individuals who've reached a certain level in their career on the, the humanizing things side. it. I mean, it sounds like you've had this amazing journey and you've been really successful in a whole host of different ways. Is there something that you could share that tells us a bit more about maybe somewhere where you made a mistake, somewhere where you learned something? that you didn't well, expect to been,
1: learn? Yeah. Well, I am on my third marriage, so that certainly um, gives you some humanity. You know, we're all looking for perfection and love and having varying degrees of success. Um, the one, one incident that sort of uh, stands out when I talk about my early life is Uh, a motorcycle accident in which I was drinking prior to getting on the bike. And with a passenger, uh, an unexpected passenger, but picked up a passenger, gave that person my helmet and proceeded to run us into a street light uh, post. And the street light won and we ended up on the deck. Uh, The other person was not really injured. But I was uh, pretty injured. I had a burst bladder um, and had to undergo emergency surgery in Boston and recovered uh, from that and with great physicians and surgeons at Mass General. But it was certainly a lesson learned. I had been riding motorcycles for a little while then, not a long time, but I went on to active duty for uh, I was mobilized after I had left active duty, and went back on to active duty for a stint in Hawaii. And I did not want to ship a vehicle, and I wanted to learn how to ride a motorcycle. So I bought one there, and started and took a course and had to figure out how to get around on the thing. And it was my only transportation there. So literally, about four or five months every day, that's all I had for transportation on the on Honolulu and had not, I had some mishaps because of malfunctioning of the bikes, but I didn't, hadn't wrecked. And as soon as I returned to Boston, I remember it was 2004 and the Democratic National Convention was in Boston that same week. And that's when I had my wreck. And so I think as a young person, you feel invincible. Oh, I can drink these three shots of tequila and be just fine on this motorcycle now i'm just like wow what kind of thought process was did i have at that time and you know these things when you learn that you're human and that your body is not invincible that was certainly one of those times and i didn't learn until much later one uh, of my one of my classmates from school who is a doctor who said t- told me that injury is 50% fatal and i had no idea had no experience with Anything having to do with the bladder or, or surgery—that was the first surgery I ever had or needed, which so that was very scary. And I immediately got about another bike, a bigger bike. Um, right, what what else would I do? Get a bigger bike and continue to ride, but more carefully. Everyone who's ever ridden a motorcycle told me, "Well, you're going to drop it at some point, yeah. Whether you get injured in that drop or not, that was my drop." And you haven't had one since. So, you know, life is definitely not perfect. That's just one mistake and one type of mistake uh, that I've made. But there have been plenty.
0: Yeah. Thank goodness you you were okay and your passenger was okay. Uh yes. I do wonder in the years that followed, as you you shifted into your professional role as a judge, how did that life experience influence the way that you, the decisions that you made in the courtroom when you're hearing
1: cases? I think that decision, that experience rather, and others, gives me some perspective on people who come into the court with criminal offenses. Um, you know, I certainly could have had a criminal offense coming out of that. I did not. But that type of, I didn't plan to, <laughs> Um, have anything negative happen that night, but it did. And I'm a young person and was drinking, which which um, either led to it or contributed to it. All of that gives me a certain perspective when I am sort of literally judging people and trying to decide punishment or remedies that make sense to try to intervene in the lives as necessary to make sure that they're not back before the court for any reason. That's, my, that's always my goal with people. And certainly things that aren't intentional like that. You know, it's not that, oh, if you have drunk driving offense, I'm going to let you go because I had that experience. Um, not at all. But the, the errors of youth, I certainly understand. And things that can happen, whether it's from a substance or just age and inexperience on the road. There, there's so many experiences that I've had and different things that I've witnessed that give me a perspective on the bench that essentially draws down to everyone is human. one is human. And there but for the grace of God go I. And, you know, I take that pretty seriously when I'm dealing with people and attempting to do justice and resolve matters in court.
0: Yeah, that's amazing and humbling sort of, a, you know, that's the, the way that those, the way that you can use those chains of life experiences, right? To inform the work that you get to do today. You've shared some really great stories and really great lessons. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, make it a point to make sure to ask all my guests before we wrap up, you know, if you had the chance, anything you haven't shared so far, if you had the chance to go back and tell your earlier self from where you are in your career now any lesson that you'd, you'd go back and share? Any special piece of advice to a younger version of you?
1: Um, to the younger version of me, probably think less about what people think of you and move even faster because life is short. And whatever it is you're aiming to do while you're on this planet, you, you got to get to doing it early, early. People are like, oh my God, you went on the bench at 39, that's so young. That was just in time. Yeah, it was the right time. Um, and you don't know all your steps, so nothing is really too early, Um, and I think particularly talking to myself as a young Black student, I would definitely say don't hold yourself back thinking that you've got to do baby steps. You don't really have to do baby steps in your career. Shoot high. Shoot high. So I did that to some extent, but I would have done it even more. <laughs> I would have done even more, especially as you're younger. You just have more energy, and that's, the, that's when you can, you know, graduate school, go into Peace Corps, hike through Europe, come back, work a 12-hour job. That's when you do all of that, because you have Join that Join the Marines
0: energy. in your last free the summer. Marines.
1: That's right. You know, shooting in the woods all summer on your last free summer as a student. Yeah. Whatever folks you vote, you know, be about it because when you're young, that's the time to get it in. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing part of your story with us and for having this conversation today. I really appreciate it.
1: Certainly. Thank you. It's been a blast. I hope you get some really great stories. I'll be listening.
0: That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show and found something to support you wherever you are on your own journey. Don't forget to subscribe where you listen to your podcasts and head over to itellmyself.com to sign up for updates. Until next time, take care.